With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I, I, just, I, I question his how genuine he really is, is what I'm getting at. Well, based upon my experience, I would have to agree with you, Jim. That was your shortest answer yet, Billy. But I understand. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate well, like you. Like I said, yeah, it's pretty obvious you. our relationship, Jim. If you want to start an argument, you'll have to change the subject. Hey, now it's cracking. Welcome to the Jim Rohn Podcast. We are up to episode 276. And I am pumped to be back because this week we have an absolute legend in his field. In fact, he is arguably the GOAT. If you know anything about handicapping or bookmaking or sports betting or gambling, then you know the name Billy Walters. Billy is not just a legend. He has an amazing life story. From humble beginnings in rural Kentucky to the opposite of a humble lifestyle, gambling hundreds of millions per year under the bright lights of Vegas. He is telling this amazing life story in a brand new book. Gambler, Secrets from a Life at Risk. I have been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time, so let's get right to it. It is episode 276 with gambling legend Billy Walters, and it's coming at you right now. So, Billy, it is absolutely awesome to talk to you. We have a lot of ground to cover. You've got a brand new book out, but let me ask you, for somebody associated with with the bright lights and the glitz and the glamour of Las Vegas, you did come up the hard way from humble roots. How would you describe your childhood in rural Kentucky? Billy, what was that like? Well, I was born and raised in a small rural town in central Kentucky. Uh, I lost my father when I was a year and a half old and my mother left and I was raised by a grandmother and I could have had four parents and I couldn't have had a better role model, luckily for me. And, uh, uh, my grandmother in early age, uh, she was a very religious uh, lady. And uh, first places I remember going, our social life was primarily the Baptist church. And every Sunday morning we went there. And then for Sunday school, we had church afterwards and training union on Sunday night, prayer meeting on Wednesday night. And I went to a Christian youth organization on Saturday night. And my grandmother worked a couple jobs and uh, we didn't have any daycare centers in, uh, in Mumfordville, Kentucky. And uh, so my uncle owned a pool room there, Jim, and uh, <clears throat> my grandmother would drop me off there and he was running, a, he was running his business. So he took me to the back pool table, put up some wooden Coca-Cola cases, uh, stacked them too high and gave me a pool cue and left me <laughs> and uh, started shooting pool when I was four years old. So essentially my life, uh, you know, we talk about the formative years of children and uh, I look back at myself today, I'm 77 and I'm essentially pretty much the same guy uh, that I was when I was seven, eight, nine, ten years old, minus a, a few uh, bad habits. Oh, that is incredible, Billy. That really is amazing. So, what was? And obviously, you've been asked this a million times. But for those who do not know, what was the very first bet you ever made? How old were you? Actually, Jim, I was six years old when I made my first bet. I played a game of penny nine ball at my uncle's pool room. But my first sports bet, I was actually nine, and uh, I'd worked for a couple years and. Saved up my money and uh, decided that I wanted to bet on the New York Yankees in the World Series. So how did that go? 
it didn't go well, Jim. The the Yankees were uh, were my heroes: Mickey Mantle, Whitey Ford, uh, Yogi Berra. Uh, they were playing the Brooklyn Dodgers, and uh, they beat them every time they played them. And frankly, uh, naively at nine years old, I thought they were a cinch. So I bet all the money I had, and uh, I lost it. And for about thirty seconds, I was devastated. And then uh, that's when I realized that uh, that I liked that, I enjoyed it, and uh, I wanted to be a sports better. And I felt like that. Uh, I could, I could actually win one day doing that. All right, so Billy, the beautiful thing is, I mean, some people spend their entire life chasing what their thing is or what their why is. You may have found it when you were nine, so that's a great thing. At what point, though, did you make that transition to becoming a bookmaker and then fully committing to that life? When did that happen? Well, what happened, Jim? I was, I, I was in the automobile business for 16 years. I was very successful in the automobile business, never accumulated any wealth because I essentially lost all my money gambling. Uh, I lost it, uh, you know, I lost it playing poker with the guys that were pros. I, I played at night when I got off from work or I lost it betting sports. Basically, you know, wasn't prepared. I was a, just a casual better and I lost my money, but I loved what I was doing. And then uh, in, the, in the late 70s, uh, I had a son who was diagnosed with a terminal brain tumor. And uh, things in, in our family and in my life got upside down. And uh, the business I had, uh, I lost it. I went bankrupt uh, and I was financially upside down. And uh, the uh, I'd always wanted to be a bookmaker. The town I lived in, <clears throat> there were plenty of bookmakers and uh, they were all making a lot of money. So I decided I was going to be a bookmaker and I uh, got out of the automobile business and uh, I started booking. I was also handicapping and betting at the same time, Jim. I was actually doing both. But uh, but that's what prompted me to get into bookmaking business. And uh, the. Uh... The thing is, though, Bill, you figured you figured something out. You were credited with revolutionizing sports betting by embracing algorithms and data analysis. And then you were a part of the famous computer group. What was the computer group? Exactly what did you guys do? Well, first of all, Jim, when I was a bookmaker in Kentucky, is how I originally got introduced to the computer group. And uh, and then later on, I started uh, moving money for the computer group. And when I moved to Las Vegas, and uh, after I'd been arrested in Kentucky for bookmaking, uh, I had to make a decision in my life. I was going to stay in Kentucky, completely quit gambling, go back in the automobile business, or if I was going to be a full-time professional gambler, I had to go someplace that I could do it legally. I could be a respected member of the community. So my wife and I uh, made the decision to move to Las Vegas. Uh, in retrospect, Jim, it was the best decision we ever made. I moved to a city that was built by the gaming industry and we weren't unfairly judged by ignorant people. Back at that time, if you were a sports better or any kind of gambler, in many cases, you were looked at like you were a criminal. And uh, by moving to Las Vegas, it allowed me to go to a place that I could be a gambler and I could do it again, uh, where I would be surrounded by people who, 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 who were in the gaming industry. So I moved to Las Vegas once I moved to Las Vegas, my role with the computer group changed. Uh, I quit booking and I was moving money from the computer group, so to speak, essentially as a kind of an independent contractor. I put together, you know, a group of people who worked for me and uh, and and when their orders came out, I, I moved money for them initially. And then what happened is time went on. Uh, there's there's kind of a, a well-known 
legal case out there that took place in 1984-1985. It was where the computer group, myself and 13 other people throughout the United States, we were raided and uh, under the pretense the, the law enforcement thought we were illegal bookmakers and associated with organized crime. Well, that wasn't true, but that's what happened. And as a result, uh, some of the people in the computer group uh, left. And then there were some things that happened inside the computer group with uh, uh, some of the partners. And uh, the, the guy who actually came up with the algorithm, algorithms and for, came up with the first computer-based program to handicap sports was a guy by the name of Mike Kent. And uh, it, it eventually came down. There was no one left but Mike and I. And uh, Mike, he was great at making numbers, a really, really bright guy. That was his expertise, you know, moving money, betting strategy, gambling was mine. And I was also a handicapper, but not as good as he was. But what I realized, Jim, was in the mid-80s, I could see that the advantage we had, it was eroding. And I could see that if I didn't do something to stay out of the game, that uh, we were going to lose our total advantage. So I went out and recruited six other Mike Kent, so to speak, to, to work for, that worked for me independently. And so I was receiving seven different sources of information independent of each other. And over the years, I've spent millions and millions of dollars uh, on an annual basis and, and R&D, and, and I've been able to stay out of the game. But, Jim, every handicapper I ever worked with, and I've worked with probably 25 of, of, of the best, every one of them that I work with, over a period of time, every one of them, they lose their advantage because things change in sports. And as you know, uh, people who make numbers have gotten smarter. The competition's gotten smarter. The dissemination of information is, is the best it's ever been. And uh, so, you know, uh, people have, have caught up. I mean, they've caught up. I mean, and if you're not able to identify an angle that, that someone else isn't aware of, then, you know, you're going to lose your advantage. And like I said, fortunate for me, I work with some extremely talented, smart people, both quantitatively and qualitatively, and I've been able to uh, maintain my advantage. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing thing, Billy. I mean, shit, if you're having this much trouble yourself or if it's challenging enough for you to maintain an advantage, I don't know what chance the rest of us have, but I'll go back to that in a minute. Discover credit cards do something pretty awesome. At the end of your first year, they automatically double all the cash back that you've earned. That's right. Everything you have earned doubled. All the cash back from eating at your favorite restaurant doubled. All the cash back from that trip where you sort of learned to snowboard also doubled. And the best part, you don't have to do anything ridiculous to get it. Discover does it automatically. Seriously, though. See terms and check it out for yourself at discover.com slash match. When you mentioned moving like millions and millions and millions of dollars, none of my business, but of course, when I say none of my business, I'll just ask the question. You're renowned for placing hundreds of millions of dollars in bets on an annual basis at times. Correct me if I'm wrong. Like, So what's the most money you ever made in a year gambling? And then subsequently, what's the most you ever lost in a year gambling? Well, I haven't really lost any money since I left Kentucky, Jim, so that was an easy one to answer. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, uh, you know. Honestly, uh, you've, never, mean, you've never had a losing year, Billy, since you left Kentucky? Not one year? No, not one year. Incredible. No. Okay. They, there, were, there were a number of things in my life that, uh, that, that have happened. First of all, Jim, I've been married 47 years to the most incredible lady you could ever imagine, and the uh, – she likes sports as much as I do. So we've had a lot of things in common and 
and uh, she stood by my side, you know, through thick and thin, and I mean through thick and thin. And uh, so I've had an incredible partner throughout these 47 years, but other issues I had in my life, such as alcohol and things such as that, I've been able to overcome those things. And But even when I had those issues, I still won every year about in sports. Uh, I didn't hold on to a lot of it because I lose in casinos and stuff like that early on. But since I've quit drinking, uh, I've played a lot luckier since. And uh, the money I've won, I've actually kind of held on to and uh, got into other businesses. But but, uh, you know, I, I would say probably the best year I ever had was maybe, you know, 80 million bucks or something. And uh, and then, you know, uh, you're right. I bet hundreds of millions of dollars. What people probably don't realize about the sports betting market, Jim, it's a much smaller market than people think it is. Uh, and to bet a lot of money uh, on sports and do it consistently for a long period of time, that's probably as hard or harder than handicapping games. Uh, it's, it's, uh, the market really isn't that big, unfortunately. And so betting a significant amount of money is, uh, I'm repeating myself, but it's difficult to do. And, uh, so, you know, early on, you know, I wasn't interested in, you know, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, if I had a million bucks and, and I lost it, that didn't really bother me because I mean, I had confidence I went it back. And frankly, I wasn't interested in winning a small amount of money. I was interested in winning a large amount of money, and that was always my goal. And uh, so I had a little different outlook, I guess, than most. And uh, that probably had a lot to do with the, the fact that, you know, I don't know, uh, I was so driven. And Billy, I bet I bet that the concern was not losing because you had so much confidence. The, the concern was getting people to take your money, especially that much money. Like, what was the first book, or who was the first book that would not take your money? Actually, I never ran into that until the Las Vegas Hilton opened. And i tell you what, Jim, you know, I've dealt with all kinds of bookmakers in my life. I've dealt with bookmakers that that really know the business, understand the art of bookmaking. And uh, Bob Martin was the smartest bookmaker I ever dealt with. He's a, an old timer, but, you know, guys in Las Vegas and people in the gambling world, uh, Bob Martin, everybody knows who Bob Martin is. And uh, he was a really smart guy. And all the smart bookmakers I ever dealt with, what they realized was, you know, if you got a smart guy, and there's going to be smart guys out there occasionally, not not as not nearly as many as, as what is currently reported today, uh, but if you got a smart guy, you know, you got a couple of choices. You can either take his business, you can take it and you can take the information, you can utilize it and, you know, move your line accordingly and you can actually earn money. Or you could take the position that, uh, well, I'm not going to take his business. I'm going to avoid the business. And if you do that, you're probably very naive because if a guy's that smart, you're going to get bet by who knows how many other people and you have no idea, you know, how, how to evaluate the business. And uh, so up until the Las Vegas Hilton opened, we didn't have any issues with bookmakers taking our business. Uh, with all due respect, I, I think that may be the one profession in the last 25, 30 years that the people uh, who are actually who are actually running a lot of these places today, I think the expertise level is probably not as great as what it once was. And uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example, Jim. Jack Binion, uh, who was part of the Binion family at, uh, at Binion's Horseshoe, uh, was and is one of my best friends I've ever had. He opened his sports book in 1989. And I told Jack, I said, look, Jack, if you don't want me to bet her, I won't bet. He said, Billy, it's just the opposite. I want you to bet me first. He said, I want you to bet me on Monday morning. He said, you can bet me 25000 a game on the colleges. You can bet me 50000 a game on the pros. And 
he wanted the business early. That way he could move his line accordingly. And he had all week long to get bets back the other way and, and allow that to earn for him. Uh, the Horseshoe Sportsbook became the most profitable sportsbook in the state of Nevada per square foot. Uh, I do business today with a casino in Las Vegas called Circa. They're in downtown Las Vegas. Uh, they're open to anyone. I, I don't care who you are. Uh, you can bet them up to 50000 a game on the colleges. You can bet them up to 200000 a game on the pros. But again, they take bets. They move their line. They, they know what they're doing. They, they get business both ways, and they're very profitable. Uh, when Jay Rood was at the MGM up until he left for 12 or 14 years at the MGM, <clears throat> I could bet them 50000 a game on the colleges, 100000 a game on the pros. I bet them as much as a million and a half dollars on some, uh, on some Super Bowls. And uh, it, it was a, a very profitable relationship for them. And obviously uh, I won. So now you've got bookmakers today that some take the position, uh, the, the, the other position that I just pointed out. And you'll have some bookmakers today, you hear the word wise guys, wise guys, we're not gonna take business from wise guys. Well, my answer to that is Jim, I think instead of as many wise guys out there as you think they are, maybe you've got some sleepy bookmakers because I'll give you an example. With the dissemination of information that we have today, there's all kinds of things that come up that have a material effect on the outcome of a game in the line. So as an example, if you've got an injury to a key player or if you've got something that comes up and, you know, the line moves two, three, four points, which in, in, in many cases it can, and you're not on top of your business, and you don't move your line, and some guy comes in and he bets you, is is he a wise guy or are you a sleepy bookmaker? Now, those guys that fall in that category, uh, and I would say 99% of them do, uh, that guy over a period of time, usually they bet other games, and you're going to want his money anyway if you understand the bookmaking. Now, if you got a guy and the only time he's going to give you a bet is in a situation like that, then clearly you don't need that business. But – you know, if you're booking major sports, you're not booking some off-the-wall uh, sport, uh, you know, that that basically you're not writing any volume or you're, you're doing Australian soccer or something like that and you lose a bunch of money to it and you're a bookmaker, you're an idiot. But if you're booking the NFL or major college football or college basketball, especially once the, the colleges get into the conferences or Major League Baseball and and if you're booking those games, especially if the line's been up for a while and it, it's been, you know, settled in, you can't book those games. You should close your doors. And uh, I give this example, Jim, and 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 it's to me it's pretty apparent. You go into any Las Vegas casino. Can you imagine if you went in to play baccarat and you won three nights in a row, when you checked out and they told you, "Well, Mr. Rome, we don't want your business anymore. You know, you're 86 out of here." And or the same thing happened to you, and you went and in Vegas for three days and shot craps and you won and they threw you out, told you not to come back. Can you imagine what the casinos would look like? They, they would be empty, but the people that run the casinos, they do understand that people can win and uh, it goes both ways. Unfortunately, some of the people involved in booking sports today, they don't understand that they're great at going out and, you know, you know, uh, internet marketing, things such as that. But I don't think the bookmaking side of it is caught up with it. Or their marketing skills yet and, and frankly uh, uh i think although we've got legalized gambling today and i think it's a great step in the right direction i think there's some things that need to happen in order for legalized gambling to to you know legalized sports betting excuse me jim to to achieve its uh its potential
U.S. Cellular knows how important your kid's relationship with technology is, and they have made it their mission to help them establish good digital habits early on. That's why they have partnered with Screen Sanity, a nonprofit dedicated to helping kids navigate the digital landscape. And for a smarter start to the school year, U.S. Cellular is also offering a free basic phone on new eligible lines, providing an alternative to a smartphone for kids. Start smarter with with U.S. Cellular. Visit uscellular.com slash built for us to find out more. Restrictions to apply. Visit uscellular.com for terms. Like what, Billy? What needs to happen? What would you like to see happen right now? Well, first and foremost, Jim, uh, it's got to be taxed fairly. I mean, if you look at the tax code with a sports betting, uh, bottom line is it's the only thing that I'm aware of in the U.S. tax code you cannot carry forward a loss in one year or the next. I was never worried about losing because I won every year. But a lot of people are going to lose one year, win, next, win the next year. They're going to have to pay taxes on the money they won, but they can't deduct the money that they lost from a previous year. That's not fair. That's the only thing in the U.S. tax code is, is treated that way. And that was, that was something that was put in the tax code in the 50s or the 60s. The other thing is any money you win betting on sports, you have to pay ordinary income tax plus your state tax. Okay, on Wall Street, uh, you go up there and you invest. Uh, in most cases, you're paying capital gains. You're paying 20%. In a lot of cases in sports betting, you're paying over 50. So that isn't fair. Uh, so, you know, we've got the legislation passed, but the people who passed it, they've got a responsibility to to the states that they represented. This revenue is going to be there. they got a responsibility to their customers. They need to go. This is a win-win for everybody, Jim. It's a win for the IRS. They're going to collect more revenue. It's a win for the industry itself. It's got a chance to grow. But this time, think about it. You know, if you want to get people involved in betting sports that bet significant amount of money, people, give an example. I just mentioned Wall Street. The people that, that invest on Wall Street, a lot of those people like sports. They would bet on sports, but they're smart people. Uh, they realize, number one, how difficult it is to win. But then they're going to turn around in case they do get lucky and they win, they're going to have to pay half of it in tax. But one year they lose, the next year they won their money back, but they got to pay tax on the year they won. They can't deduct the, the loss from the year before that. You know, as long as that exists, uh, you, you're going to have a really difficult time and sports betting uh, expanding, uh, ex especially to anyone who falls into the category that, you know, if they're going to bet a significant amount of money. You know, in, in, in the UK and Europe for years and years, Jim, uh, you know, gaming winnings over there, uh, it's it's tax-free. And why is it tax-free? First of all, almost no one wins. Uh, they get their revenue from jobs it creates, uh, the taxes they collect from people in the industry. They realize the sports betters, the vast majority of them don't win. But if you do win, uh, uh, you know, you're not subject to tax there. That's how that business has grown to what it is today. And that's one of the main things that has to happen here today. And although it looks like we got a lot of people out there uh, that are they're in the business of, of, of booking sports, we, when you really stop, you know, you look you look at it, we really don't have that many people. We need more competitors in the business to make the business more competitive. You know, Billy, it seems to me, you and I have never spoken, so I don't know, but you tell me otherwise. It seems like you're really, really transparent. Like, the information you're sharing, all of this stuff, would you have shared information like this five years ago, ten years ago? And if you don't need the money, why did you want to write the book? 
Well, Jim, uh, the, the main motivating reason for me writing this book, I've thought about writing this book for a period of time. The information I put in there in regards to sports betting and sports handicapping, 10 years ago, Jim, I wouldn't have sold the information for $20 million. I'm 77 years old. Uh, I'm not getting any younger. Uh, sports betting is now legal. It's a dream that's come true to me. And uh, so I wanted to share this with sports fans. I want to share it with people out there. They're, you know, they're betting on sports, so to speak. Uh, I've always kind of wanted to share, you know, my my background with, with addiction and some of the issues I faced in my life. I think I can help people who are facing similar situations. I've been to prison. Uh, I wanted to share that experience. But the thing that really was a deciding factor for me, Jim, was I was in prison and unfortunately my daughter committed suicide. She was addicted to opioids. And uh, that the day that that happens, uh, you know, really uh, the circumstances surrounded it, uh, it, it I, I knew I was going to do this book because I had to do it for a number of reasons. But when I decided to do it, to put in everything that I know about sports betting, uh, it was uh, it's a point in time in my life that that I'm ready to do this and I want to do this. Uh, you're right. With all due respect, Jim, I don't need the money. I didn't do this for money. Any money I earned from this, 100% of it's going to go to charity. It's going to go to three charities, Opportunity Village in Las Vegas, Hope for Prisoners in Las Vegas, and Cedar Lake Lodge in Louisville, Kentucky. You know, Billy, you, you mentioned you went to prison and you went to prison for insider trading. You've talked about this as part of the book tour, but I want to ask you, in terms of your relationship with Phil Mickelson, he could have testified on your behalf. He did not testify on your behalf. Had he done so, would that have kept you out of prison? I believe it would, Jim. And 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 I, 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 out of my 28 chapters in the book, there's there's two that, that, that talk about my relationship with Phil. And the only reason they're, they're in there is because in telling my story, uh, a huge part of me going to prison, I believe, is because Phil didn't testify. And what really, frankly, Jim, I've, I've always prided myself in being a really good judge of character, and I am most most times. And I really, I thought Phil and I were friends, and I don't take friendship lightly. I've been around long enough to know the difference between acquaintances and friends, and I, I felt like he and I were friends. And uh, I thought he was really a stand-up guy, and I thought when I went to the Southern District of New York and I was in trial, uh I thought he would come forward and testify and simply tell the truth as as he had told the FBI on two different occasions. He told me he would. And when I got there, uh, he uh, his attorneys told my attorneys if we called him, he was going to take the Fifth Amendment. And if someone tells you that, you can't call him as a witness. I knew the government was going to call him because they already knew that he told them I didn't give him inside information. So uh, in my trial, Jim, the biggest mistake I made was not testifying myself in retrospect. Uh, there was one fellow who testified against me uh, two years before that. He'd emphatically denied that uh, I'd ever, ever given him any, any inside information. Uh, he had got involved in a bunch of illegal things himself. He had, he had, he had embezzled money from a better women's charity. He had filed fraudulent tax return. Uh, he had actually given someone else inf inside information. Uh, and, and as a result, he had himself in a lot of trouble. And uh, two years later, he goes in and, and decides, you know, he's willing to change his story if they're willing to essentially uh, give him a pass. And so he did. And he hired a lawyer and went up and uh, he had he had 29 different meetings with the FBI and the prosecutors to get his story straight. So I was the only guy who testified against me. And uh, at the end of our trial, my lawyers were convinced that 
this this guy's credibility was destroyed. We caught him in at least 25 lies. No one in the courtroom uh, could believe this guy. He had no credibility. My lawyer said, well, look, if, if they can't believe this guy, there's no way that they can convict you because the whole case was this guy. And uh, I had 23 witnesses. Uh, they recommended, and I agreed with them, the choice was mine, that uh, we don't call any of the witnesses. Uh, they called five, and we wrapped up the case. If Phil had testified uh, in retrospect, you know, with his celebrity, I've got one guy testifying against me who's got no credibility, and I've got Phil Mickelson uh, with his celebrity coming forward and saying, look, the stock I bought, Billy Walters never gave me any inside information as far as I know. If he had said that, uh, Jim, uh, I don't think I would have I would have been convicted. No, I don't think I would have ever gone to prison. So, Billy, and I know what you're saying when you say that I've got 28 chapters in this book, two are on Phil. This is why I did not start the interview with Phil, so I hear what you're saying. But if that's all it would have taken, and he said that he would testify on your behalf, and it would have kept you out of prison, you think, and you were good friends, why did he not testify on your behalf? I can't answer that. My only guess is he was involved in a, in another case independent of this that had nothing to do with me, with two other fellows that involved uh, money laundering and a wire transfer. And my only thinking is, is that possibly, you know, he didn't want to be answering questions about that. That's, I mean, I'm only guessing, but that's the only thing I can come up with. I mean, clearly it's, uh, it's been reported out there that he wired some money to a fellow uh, involving paying an offshore gambling debt. And the money that he, he, as a result, there was an investigation. Uh, like my case, he was dropped out of that case. The fellow he wired the money to, uh, he went to federal prison for it. So uh, that's that's my only guess, Jim, as to why he didn't do it. Outside of that, I can't answer. Hmm. Did he ever reach out to you personally after you went away and you were sent to prison? While I was in prison, I never heard a word from him, even after my daughter committed suicide. Actually, Jim... After, before I went to prison, he issued a statement, distanced himself from me. He said he was going to be a lot more careful about whom he associated with in the future. I went to prison and I never heard a word from him the entire time. I got out of prison. I went to uh, the golf club where he's a member, I'm a member, and I was going to play golf one day with some friends. I'd been on the range and I warmed up and I was walking in my golf cart and he approached me, he walked up and he big smile on his face. He said, it's so great to see you. I'm glad you're home playing golf again. And we had a few private words after that, and I haven't spoken to him since. I don't know, Billy. I mean, you know him much better than me. I know early, early, early on, I had a PGA Tour pro tell me, and this is when he was just absolutely beloved long before anything happened and said, nobody knows this guy. He is the most disingenuous guy ever, 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 ever. He is not what he seems. And the one thing I learned in this business, Billy, we don't know anybody. We don't know anybody based on what? An interview, a soundbite, this, that, or the other. But somebody told me that early on. I clearly never forgot that. I think there might be something to that. I, I, just, I, I question his how genuine he really is is what I'm getting at. Well, based upon my experience, I would have to agree with you, Jim. That was your shortest answer yet, Billy. But I understand. <laughs> I appreciate well, like you. I said, you know, it's pretty I obvious you. relationship, Jim. If you want to start an argument, you'll have to change the subject. I got you. I got you. So leave me with this thought, and I appreciate the conversation. I'm so glad we could come together like this. It, how does the average better make money gambling on the NFL long term if they do not have a sophisticated system or the computer group, or how should they approach it? First of all, I don't think you're going to make money long term, not lay 11 to 10. And unless someone comes along with, uh, you know, uh, 
lesser odds, but even with that, it's it's Jim, you know, over over a long period of time on a consistent basis, it's next to impossible to beat the NFL uh, for the person you've described. Now, to me, if you're going to bet on sports and you're looking, you're going to do it as a recreation and you set aside whatever amount of money you can afford and you bet that and you have some fun, you bet on your teams. I think that's great. And I, I think you can have a lot of fun doing it, but don't go into it betting on the NFL thinking you're going to make any money because I can tell you it is uh, one of the toughest things in the entire world to do. I invest in the, in, in the stock market substantially, and I can tell you investing in stocks is child play comparing to handicapping the NFL. Well, that is really something. Billy, the book is an incredible read. It's a fascinating read. I really appreciate that you and I could finally have this conversation. Thanks for going long form, coming on the podcast, and it's really great to talk to you, Billy. Thank you so much. Well, it's a true honor, Jim, to be on your on your podcast. Thank you. No, my man, I got to say, it was actually an honor to have you on this show. That is one of the sharper dudes I have ever spoken to, but in no way am I surprised by any of that. Well, except for that one thing about him not having a single losing year in decades. And I do not doubt the veracity of that. He's that good. He's that sharp. I mean, do you doubt him? What an amazing conversation. Enormous thanks to Billy for carving out so much time. That was very real and very raw. That is some high-quality side hustle right there. That's what I'm trying to tell you. And luckily for all of you, there's a lot of quality side hustle that's still on the way. Even though we've already pumped out 276 episodes, we are still pumping them out every single week. So take a chance and subscribe if you would. This way you'll be alerted every single time a brand new episode does drop. Consider subscribing, and I will catch you all in a week for episode 277. We're out.